All right, well, let's dive in. Uh, welcome. I'm glad you're here on the very first uh, day of uh, Harbor. It's so good that you're here. Um, uh, first full day, I'm sorry. We were here last night. What an amazing message from Wade. Uh, I think the theme is going to uh, move us forward, I think, in such important ways. Um, well, I will say um, we're going to talk today a little bit about um, sort of a big picture look at the way we think about our churches. And uh, we're going to uh, use it by thinking about the big rock that is still sitting in my garage as of this morning. Uh, I asked Agnes, I said, hey, honey, you want to come and, and listen to my class today? And she said, uh, what's it about? I said, well, I'm talking about the rock in our garage. And she said, there's no way I'm coming to that class. <laughs> um, there is a rock in my garage. More about that in a minute. But there are also rocks in the Bible, right? Sometimes we think about rocks uh, in very positive ways. Uh, the rock of my salvation. Hide me in the cleft of the rock. It represents a fortress. It represents a, um, a security, stability, something that I can stand on. One of our favorite stories, building your house upon the rock instead of the sand. So rock is a very positive metaphor, uh, way of thinking about stability, security. Uh, it's also in the Bible in a different, presented in a different way. What is it? It's also, it could be a millstone. Uh, small rocks were used to uh, kill people. Uh, rocks can be a stumbling block. And so uh, today we're going to talk about some rocks that we may have, like just as I did, um, have invited and brought into our midst, and now we don't know what to do with them. How do we deal with these 500-pound rocks? By the way, uh, as you note, um, I still have the 500-pound rock in my garage, and if anybody knows how to move one, I would be uh, happy to hear it. <coughs> so let me tell you how that happened first, all right? I get that out of the way, and I say this story, and I share this story with some risk, because by the time I share it, and you absorb what I've done, you will doubt that I have the wisdom to actually even be in front of you this morning <laughs> to offer anything good. So... Um, we all spent a lot of time at home during the pandemic. I decided to turn our backyard into a little sanctuary. A beautiful little kind of a zen-like garden. There's a new fountain back there. There's a little walkway. It's just a lovely little space to sort of escape. And I thought to myself, you know, this space right here that's been carved out, and, and, and there's a fountain nearby, this would be a great place for a bench. And so we tried different benches only to realize that you know, the bench felt a little too formal. And I thought, what about a stone bench, a natural bench? And so I'm driving through Thousand Oaks on Thousand Oaks Boulevard, and I come past, and I drive past a, um, uh, a big property that sells uh, building materials. And it had a sign that drew me in, open to the public. And I thought, wow, I bet you I could find a rock there. Oh, listen, you can find all kinds of rocks there. Many rocks, big rocks, little rocks, 500-pound rocks that would work perfectly in my little Zen garden. So I, um, I go in and I talk to some people about what's available to me, and they show me uh, a, a bunch of rocks. And they say, we charge by the pound, uh, there will be a delivery fee, and all that, and I kind of negotiate that a little bit. And, um, and yes, I 
bought a rock. Uh, I paid money for the rock, even though I drive past rocks falling down from the canyon every single day. But I purchased a rock to put in the backyard in my Zen garden, and everything was going to be perfect. And it was a beautiful rock. I loved it. I told Agnes when I came home, I said, honey, what did you do today? And she told me. She was productive. Rick, what did you do today? I bought a rock. <laughs> and so I bought this big rock. It will be delivered next Thursday. So sure enough, 8 o'clock, Thursday morning, uh, a massive, massive 18-wheeler uh, pulls up. And the only thing on the flatbed is my 500-pound rock. And so I have this rock. I go, wow, did you really have to bring the semi-truck out to bring my rock? And he said, well, this is what we have. And it also had on the back of it a forklift that would help move the rock. This is at the point where I realized I did not ask enough questions when I went to buy the rock. So when I get there, yeah, did you buy, have you bought a rock before too? I think, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, well. So I buy this rock, it is delivered, and the guy who's delivering it comes out. And by the way, I paid to have it delivered too. I bought a rock, I paid to have it delivered, and he says, oh, I only bring it to the curb. Oh. And I said, well, I need this rock in my backyard. He said, well, I only bring it to the curb. So then, the skillful negotiator that I am, I said, what if you were to bring it up into my garage? And he said, I can do that. So he brought the rock up into my garage, he put it down, and I said, can you help me maybe get it on this, floor, this little hand cart? Because I bought one. I paid for a handcart to move the rock that I paid for that had just been delivered, something I had also paid for. And I bought this rock, this hand truck, and this hand truck was, uh, uh, what is it, certified 800 pounds. Easy. We tried to nudge that 500-pound rock onto the hand truck, all right? And the tires of this hand truck that are supposed to be able to manage 800 pounds, they immediately go flat. <laughs> I suddenly realized, I don't know how to move this rock. And I still don't know how to move this rock. Now, here's the, here's the challenge. If I was moving it on something solid, I'd get a little hand <coughs> truck or something. But I'm moving it across into my little delicate Zen garden. And there are dozens of things, including the new little walkway that I put in, that will be destroyed if something too heavy falls on it or the wheels dig into the ground. Anyway, I have some ideas. I've had plenty of suggestions. Uh, if my marriage is to survive, I've got to figure out how to move this rock pretty soon. But it got me thinking about the rocks that we think we need, that we buy, we pay good money for. We spend a lot of time um, uh, taking care of, that, uh, of those things. And then suddenly we realize, wow, how do we move this? How do we actually either move it to a place where it really belongs? Because, by the way, I still think the rock's a good idea, but not in my garage. It belongs somewhere else, but it's in my garage. If you haven't picked it up already, this is an 800-pound gorilla story. This is an org behavior story. These, this is a question about what are those things that we have invited into uh, our churches that are still there? What are those things that are 500-pound rocks 
that we can't move. People are now walking around them. They don't even notice that they're there. They don't even see them. If you were to ask them about the rock that's in our church, they'd say, what rock? I don't see the rock. No, your visitors see the rock. Everybody else sees the rock. But, boy, it's been here forever. We don't know how to even, why would we move the rock? I mean, that's what Agnes is afraid of. She's afraid that it's going to finally just find its own in our garage and stay there. How do we move it? And so what I decided to do today was to think about three of those rocks that I think, and by the way, there may be many, but this is a conversational class that will uh, we'll kind of engage around those, and I'll let you know what mine are, and I'll give you my, my thoughts on what some of them are, and then I will um, see if you have other rocks you might like to add to the list. Um, sound good? All right. The... Uh, Rock number one for me. We have, if you just came from Taylor Wally's class, you heard about this, but we have, uh, we have some traditions, some ways of thinking uh, that are actually really powerful and important. And one of those is the enjoying the autonomy that's in our churches. But I will say that over time, we've developed what I'm calling an irrational commitment to autonomy. Not just a radical commitment to autonomy, but an irrational commitment to autonomy. And what that does is that walls us off. We find ourselves separated from other ideas, other people, other thoughts, and we sort of put ourselves in our own little bubble. We believe in that. We think that's right. We think that's a way to kind of Um, prevent uh, mission drift. Uh, It's a way to prevent uh, and and kind of control the environment that we're in. So this irrational commitment to to autonomy, it's fiercely protected. I think it freezes us. It isolates us, limits us. It's built on, and this is important, I think, it's built on, maybe this is another rock, a sense of mistrust of the other. And we want to bring some kind of local control. So much so that we won't even talk with one another. Why do some people love to come to things like Harbor? It's a way to say things out loud that you dare not say at home. So I do wonder, and and by the way, this is, as you know, the rock is still in my garage. So this is not about solving these problems. This is about identifying them. But one of them is this sense of irrational autonomy. In a minute, I will suggest ways we might think about that differently, but I don't have solutions around that one. By the way, I work in church relations at, um, at Pepperdine, and what that means is that I preach at churches on occasion. And I recall on one trip recently where I was due to preach, I was going to a church that was about 90 minutes away that required that I send my um, outline of my sermon in advance so they could approve it before I spoke. And on the way there, I passed a church that has uh, women elders, a church of Christ, it's on the door. I passed a church that has no women elders, but they have a band. I passed a church of Christ that's not called a church of Christ, but it is a church of Christ on the way there. All the way to a church that welcomed me because they had approved my message. Uh, Happy to do it. 
Uh, I found out the faculty were not happy to do it, so that's why I took the assignment. But that is within 90 minutes of where we are here at Pepperdine. Those churches don't speak to one another. They don't trust one another. They don't have ways of learning how to, um, uh, you know, how to learn from one another. So I do think that one rock, whether it's 500 pounds or not, but one rock is irrational, our commitment to irrational autonomy. Uh, second, I will put this down here, um, membership driven. We are, I didn't know this until I joined the Rotary Club of Los Angeles. And over time, I was invited to become uh, on the track to become president of the Rotary Club of Los Angeles. And I had no idea how similar it was to being the minister of the church. Uh, well, what do you think? We meet once a week, and we expect our members to give. We pay dues. That's a little different. But we wear pins. We meet every week. It is noted when you're not there. If you don't pay your dues, you'll get a letter. Um, but I'm going to Rotary on Fridays and giving money. I'm going to church on Sundays and giving money. And I began to pick up on the similarities between the two. It is a membership-driven organization. That's how Rotary works. You need new members who bring in their, uh, they pay their annual dues, they give on occasion, and then Rotary can operate and exist. Well, uh, there are some really interesting similarities. When I became president, I would give my weekly presidential speech, and then I'd walk to the back to greet the guests as they walked out. You know, when our members were sick, I would go and visit them as a Rotarian. You know, the point being is, is that, and I, by the way, Rick, what's wrong with that? I'm not talking about something that's bad, but I am trying to make the point that we look very much like membership-driven organizations. In a moment, I'm going to say, I'm going to suggest di discipleship, disciple-driven organizations uh, might have something else for us. So this commitment to acting and thinking like members is transactional. You may be surprised to learn that a lot of churches recently uh, were polled after um, COVID and after, as we tried to figure out how do we get back together, uh, that some churches have given up membership as a requirement to be in the church. Now, not necessarily churches of Christ, but some maybe. But 18% of churches, broadly evangelical uh, Protestant churches, they were no longer requiring membership to be belong. Now, if I was not a Rotarian, I'd say, that makes no sense. But I'm telling you, we have, in my Rotary Club, a half a dozen to a dozen young people that come intermittently. They give, they participate, but they want to figure out how do I belong, not how do I sign up. They're not interested in membership as an expression of belonging. They are far more interested in the idea here. I'm They are far more interested in the idea of how do I get involved? How am I engaged? How do I belong? And we use this family language even when we talk about our churches. But membership-driven doesn't speak that language as easily as an actual family might. So again, I don't know how we're going to solve all this, but in a bit we'll talk about what might be the difference between a membership-driven church 
and a disciple-driven church. Uh, the last one I'll mention is our commitment to building, and I realize I may not be talking to people who are committed to these things, but in general, uh, our commitment to building um, fortress, fortresses. Our churches are committed to building walls around. Um, we're leaning into cleft of the rock. I stand on the solid rock. All the positive metaphors of the rock in the Bible uh, because it helps us develop and bring some sense of control. So it's defensive, it's isolated, it's closed, but it's a fortress. It's sort of like we have the will of God and we've buried it and we've put it here, we've protected it. No one will storm the gates to ever remove the truth that is hidden deep within our churches. I understand the impulse but locked away, isolated, closed. Membership, is this really a way of, of uh, running or, or organizing ourselves around a membership program or plan? And then this idea of being so isolated that we will isolate ourselves from one another. There's a sense in which we are operating more and more around fearful impulses about who we are, how do we protect it, how do we remain faithful as churches. But it, in some ways, and in many ways, and in my experience, is closing us off, and we probably only have to look at the trajectory of our churches to realize they are shrinking, they are closing. There, there's got to be some way for the people of God, for us, to open up and consider something different. All right, I've given you my three. We're going to pause for a minute. Uh, if you want to discuss any of those, ask a question about any of those, we're going to keep moving here in a minute. Or then in a minute, I'm going to ask you, what other rock would you put up on the board? Questions, observations, reactions to any of that? Yeah, Paul. One and three looks like they're the same. One and three. Yeah, the first one been the traditions of autonomy and then committing to the wall. Um, those seem to go hand in hand. Because of our commitment to autonomy, we build the walls. Right. Right. Uh, I, I, I'm actually seeing more and more of this, of, of these three, is actually being kind of related. There's, there's a link to, to, to these three in my mind. Yes, sir. Go on about the autonomy. I guess what I've noticed is um, kind of like a natural disaster. You know, the natural disaster in the community. Everybody just rushes to help. Right. I mean, anything you can do, no questions about getting paid back. Um, you need food, you need clothes, you need shelter. For, for the immediate emergency, to get a person, you know, a uh, family, like, where they need to be. And, and I've seen congregations like that for the world, right? It's like, um, congregation XYZ has a, a mission in Mexico, there's been an awful earthquake there. Oh, how much can we give them? What do you need? As much as we can give them, no questions asked. What do you it's need? It's the long term, day by day, month by month, year by year, intercongregational coordination, where there's, well, how much are we going to be giving them, and what are they going to be doing with this money, and right. who's going to be in charge, 
Right? I think their priorities and their missions really line up with what our congregation's goals are. Right. Or is it our general area, or is it somewhere in another part of the state, or another part of the country, another part of the world? But it's not an urgent, you know, like a natural disaster crisis. Then all of these other questions start coming out. Right. There's no urgency there. There's no sense of real threat. Uh, a real, uh, a real opportunity to serve. Uh, yeah, we will come together around those things. But those churches that I passed up on my way to my speaking engagement, they won't talk to each other much because they feel like they have less and less in common because of what they believe and practice, too. So there is some distrust there, too. But you're right. And in a moment, we're going to talk about the responses to vision that I think uh, will help us clarify uh, some of the primacy of these of, of these ideas. But you're absolutely correct. As a Rotarian, um, one of the things I found out that uh, Rotary uh, presidents deal with every Friday after the meeting is the complaint emails come in. Why do they always serve fish? You know, uh, tell me why is there um, uh, why is the, why is there now a an electric guitar player playing the national anthem before we start the meeting? I'm talking Rotary here. So I learned that that was a very, another, another similarity. That same Rotary Club, that same Rotary Club learned on one particular Friday that uh, a shipment of wheelchairs that were supposed to go to Bolivia never made it. And what did we do? One unprompted Rotarian stood up and said, ladies and gentlemen, we can solve this today. Let's do that. We raised $15,000 in about 10 minutes from this impulse stand-up, and he uh, prompted the club to give $15,000 to get the wheelchairs down to Bolivia in time for the mission group that was going to go down. So we responded quickly. So membership, they can, memberships can do good. But how did that one organize itself in an impromptu way? Responding to a need hearing the urgency, and someone standing up and saying, let's do this. Now, that makes anybody who has the microphone at a church or the Rotary Club nervous. But he's a Rotarian. He stood up. He just said, this is what we should do, and we did it. Um, more about vision in a minute. But yes, I think that is, uh, that's when you see our better impulses, I do believe. Other questions, responses about these three. Do you see links? Do you see differences? We'll get to what other rocks might be there in a minute. What, what I yeah. would see, uh, what we haven't done in the past in Churches of Christ, I think is built community, and especially our children and grandchildren right. that are raising up now don't see the importance of community. Right. They're, everything's individualistic, um, and it's, it's really hard to make them understand how important community is, especially after COVID. Right. Um, to come back together and have that family community. Right. And um, and that it, and, and for us to develop it as a safe place. And that's another another mission there is to develop it as a safe place where we can talk I, I, openly. Openly, yeah. I mean, there's a part where I want to ask, what are we so afraid of not to have the conversation that is coming to us? Um, yeah, no, I really, I really do appreciate you taking the point. Yeah. And I think that those uh, trends toward economy and, and fortress mindset grow from our church to within 
our church. Oh, right? how so? Yeah. She was just saying, you know, it, that our, our younger generations are looking for a community that we haven't built because in, in some situations, we get together with our small group and that's against the rest of them. I mean, not overtly. Right. But, and even my family to the rest of the church, they're not going to know everything that goes on here. And right. that's, that's the same kind of destructiveness that happens when you're not open to your brothers and sisters. It's the same kind of destructiveness that happens in a church when you're not open to your neighbors. Right. In your community. Transactional church is, will not, cannot last. And when that's perceived as being offered, um, that will not last. Now, members who understand membership as this is how I know I'm in the Lamb's Book of Life, as I'm a card-carrying member of, right? Um, they may get that, but there is a generational piece to this. Membership makes sense still to me. What does it mean to not have members? I mean... Um, Brian, I, I think Emily's placed membership. I know she's active in the church, uh, but I think she's placed membership. Uh, I know that before she came to the Glendale Church, uh, she went to uh, try the Saddleback LA. And um, they put her through classes, and there were 10 things they need to learn in those classes. And then she had, was asked to sign the document that she believes those. She says, I don't do that. I won't do that. Why would you, you know... Well, she's been raised right, you know. I mean, uh, she knew that was not the way that, that works. Now, I don't know. Is she, has she placed membership? I guess. Yes, but, yeah, no, yeah. It, but it, it definitely feels different, yeah, in, in this day and time, for sure. Right. Yeah. There used to be a real process for this, right? We had the cards printed up. Now we have QR codes and things like that. You come with a letter of recommendation, too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> All of them are those yeah. Right. <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I would just jump on what, what he said um, as far as the fortress within. I think that um, what, however, however your leadership is structured, there's um, a sense of distrust of leaders, like right. the, the pastor and elders, however, versus the benefit of the doubt that used to be given. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's easy to kind of feel like you're in, in that fortress and how do you create a sense of openness for, for everybody especially for people who aren't going to give the benefit of the doubt at first. And right. how do you find a way to right. foster conversation? Yeah. yeah. I think there's an Emily story in there, too, uh, about just, you know, and young people really do have questions about, who says? Why do you say? You know. and, and by the way, just because young people think it doesn't mean it's right, but they do think a certain way, and it is, and, and there, are, there are structural organizational questions around what does it mean for me to belong to the family of God through this church and if we answer those in transactional ways you know uh, then uh, that's I don't see that working much longer for our churches Mary Alice you were going to say something earlier right I was going to say we quit doing a church directory and we've all been mad about it but now I'm kind of thinking it's probably a better way to do it is just to let, we've had two new members come recently, but, you know, they didn't really place membership. They just started coming, and they're right. involved, and they do feel like they belong, and so maybe the directory was sort of a, you know, that they had to sign up. Right, right. So, that, that's right. And, uh, by the way, 
nothing inherently wrong with directories. It helps. They're outdated immediately, right? Yeah, yeah we have online directories, so maybe that will help. But who's going to keep it up? Yeah. You know, again, we're not talking about tactics or ways to do that. We're talking in almost abstract terms. Transactional church isn't even biblical, but we're going to find out it's not effective. Uh, or we've already found out it's not effective. Yeah. Speaking of directories, we had a discussion this week about do we include visitors in the list, in the, in the directory? And my opinion has always been, if they've been here like a couple of times, put them in. Um, and some people say, no, because they are not members. And I said, oh, why do you need that? So anyway, I, right. so I belong to a lot of organizations that I just go there and join them. And I'm a member already. I never sign a paper. So right. that's my thinking. Right. But I see that most of us, that's not the right way to do it, right. or they think it's not the right way. So I don't know, but right. my opinion is we don't need you to be a member to be able to say that, yeah, I, am, I, I belong to this organization. Right. But that kind of defeats the purpose of an eldership being shepherds if you don't know who your members are or who your attendees are. Right. Yeah. And to me, the directory is such a great way to do it and we're trying to redo ours and we're having questions well people want to be members but they don't want their information in the directory okay. how do the elders we all remember we all remember what it was like to uh either have an asterisk by your name or you know or to see one and go oh no good good <laughs> too often our our shepherds become managerial yeah and um, some, sometimes we adapt things, the rock and the, the churches, we do things so that we can manage instead of shepherd. I agree. So, I don't know how you went to church during um, COVID, but here's how my family did. Uh, we tuned into Glendale Church on Sunday mornings, and then we met with our, this was a little bit later down, down, outside in our backyard, before it was a Zen garden, waiting for its rock. <laughs> and in our backyard, we would have a group of eight to 10 of us who met regularly over a meal, prayer, scripture. Um, so you did have the rock with you. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. That was, that felt so much more like church. That's still going on, by the way. It's not happening on Sunday mornings, but that's still happening. It is not hard for shepherds to find or keep up with a flock of eight. One of the questions and one of the rocks that I think that we deal with, and I didn't want to put it up here because this gets really dicey really fast. These are the safe rocks I brought today. I didn't bring the, the, the bigger rocks. Why do we have to manage? We have buildings to pay for. Yeah. Property is a huge rock. Amen. Huge rock. Um, we have to uh, take care of it. We have to manage the risk around it. You know, and every so often we have to recarpet it and bring in new pews. I mean, we've got to do those things, right? Do we? Well, it's not hard to keep track of a flock of eight. And I am not sure. And and I don't hear me be anti mega church here, but that's one way. But there is a different way of thinking about, that feels a little more New Testament to me even, about not building our churches at scale. That is so 
Western of us to say, big church, that's, that's the valid church. That, oh, they're a lighthouse church. Oh, that's a, you know. Listen, I was in ministry uh, at a church in Mission Viejo. And, um, and I loved every minute of it. <laughs> um, but I could not pay for my insurance. I was falling behind on any kind of retirement and all of that. And so I thought, what am I going to do? Well, had we actually been more cooperative as a fellowship, there might have been insurance policies for me or other kinds of things the way I would, that's sidebar. But at the end of the day, it was very, very difficult to, be, to say the only way you can get those things is once we become a church like they are. What are they? They're twice as big as we are. So scale, size, all of that. We elevate that. We, I mean, very often, you know, I, I, I remember, um, oh goodness, I've lost his name all of a sudden. This is what happens when you try to improvise here. Um, I'll think of it in a minute. He's a great uh, preacher, uh, kind of the dean of preachers. Uh, boy, I, I've lost it. He said, when I asked, who's the greatest preacher there is? that you know I'm out there right now. He said, I don't know, it's probably some guy in Nebraska we've never heard of, or some woman in whatever that we don't even know of. But that's not who gets the big stage at Bible right. Lectures, right? Who gets, who gets the stage? People who are leading big churches. Because somehow they know something we don't. Well, I don't want to put them down, but I do want to say that I'm not sure our commitment to big churches isn't its own rock. And that is the way we sort of monetize and, and build around buildings and staff. And we begin to have to almost run like a business. Um, now again, I'm throwing out a lot of abstract ideas. I'm not throwing out answers. Um, that's hard. But I, but I do wonder about uh, our commitment to some of those things. Any other rocks that you would that come to mind for you? There's one, one gigantic one that's out there, but I won't. Uh, but I want to hear what yours is first. What rock would you put up there? Can yes. I just make a comment about yes. what you just said about yes. changing um, the building? And um, I guess I'm going to choose my son's horn. Pat Mills is doing a session tomorrow. Yeah. On they sold their large church building yes, they did. in the last year or so and have re reduced down in order to serve the missional community that they have been living in. Yeah. And he's, he's talking about that. That's and I... the problems <coughs> and the angst and the, it has physically and mentally been such a stress on him. I know, I can as, only imagine. As the preacher and the, the manager of the, you know, the business. Um, he's, he's worn, I don't know how many hats, trying to get that church family transitioned into this newer mindset. Yeah. And it's been quite an ordeal. I, I can only imagine. Uh, that is happening, though. Yes. More and more people yes. at churches are, are recognizing the value of their asset and wondering what could that do and appropriate it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and think about the limitations for a moment. There's the other side of the ledger, the challenges associated with 
So for a moment, think about the limitations that disappear when caring for a facility is not one of them. You know? um, so brings up a lot of things. Yeah, and opportunities for, yeah. for, for, for things. It does. It does present its own challenges, as as Pat knows. I, I highly recommend the, hearing the Highland Oak story. It's an amazing story, and I believe it could be the it could be the one of many that are starting to come. All right, I want to make sure we get this uh, up here because there's a little bit of meat. I think this is useful for you, so I put it already up on the board. And then I'd like for us to maybe think about our um, our conversation today with this little formula in mind. This is not mine. This is from a guy named Peter Senge, uh, whose whole world is organizational development. But he's, he, he goes at length in his book, The Fifth Discipline, talking about what are the seven responses to vision. And I'd like for you to just listen to what these are for a moment, maybe write them down, and then I'm going to ask you a few questions. Um, this is no test, but just kind of responses to um, this formula and way of thinking about vision. Why is this so important? Uh, Sangay also says there's nothing more, there's no force in the universe, he says the universe, more powerful than a shared vision of the future. People who come together and see that. Yeah, we believe differently. We believe the great board, uh, uh, force in the universe is, is God, but the idea holds up, right? It is that when people have a shared vision of what's coming, their response and action and engagement with that is very, very different. So here are, some, here are the seven responses that he says. Responses to vision. And this is linked to the rocks that we're talking about. The first, and there are, there are three positive, there's one somewhat neutral, and then there are three negative. So the first is commitment. This is a person who believes in the benefit of the vision, understands it, cares about it so much, may even be among the founders of the, of the vision, of the big idea. This person will write the laws to make it happen. What does it need? How do we do? This is the mindset of an entrepreneur. I am all in. This person is at the very apex, the top of the response um, funnel. The next is a little lower down, enrollment. This is a person who believes in the benefits of the, of the vision and will do whatever it takes within the spirit of the law. This person doesn't write the law. This person is receiving impulses to, to promote this um, and to be involved and engaged from someone else. But this person is on board, Not more, is more than on board. This person will make it happen within the spirit of the law. So just a nuanced difference there according to Senge. And then there's genuine compliance. They, this person here, let me make sure I get this right, sees the benefit, will intentionally take action on behalf of the vision. This is a person that may not need to be asked to be engaged in uh, the vision. So we have at the, at the top, commitment, all in, probably a founder, probably somebody developing uh, the vision, him or herself. Enrollment, someone who comes alongside brings different skills, benefits, but doesn't see it, believes in it. Genuine compliance sees the, um, sees the benefits and will take action without being asked on his or her own. On this side of the ledger, before we get there, we come to formal compliance. And this person is, generally sees the benefits of the vision 
and will support the vision when asked. But it's not taking action him or herself, but when asked. And then on the other side of the ledger is grudging compliance. This is a person who um, doesn't see the benefits of the vision, but for whatever reason needs the relationship, needs to be involved uh, with the organization, the church, whatever it is. But they're not on board. They don't understand it. They don't care, but they're there for another reason. They have grudging compliance. Below that is noncompliance. This person works against it. Doesn't, not only does he or she not see the benefit, they think it's the wrong way to go, and they work against it. So they work against the vision. And then the worst response of all is, I don't care. Apathy. And so I will ask you, uh, first of all, let me clarify any of those seven, if I can. Questions about those? Yes. Um, Commitment, enrollment, genuine compliance. Yeah. Okay, I'm not understanding why the bottom two aren't reversed. Well, let's see. Uh, seeds benefit with intentional. Let's see if I got it right. We'll do whatever it takes, enrollment, in the spirit of the law to make it reality. Genuine compliance. Seeds benefit will intentionally take action on behalf of uh, the vision. I think my own explanation is just not giving the... For, I'm speaking for Sange. Um, this is... This is, uh, I've described these two too close together. This is truly a, a person who is part of the visioning uh, party, the visioning committee, the visioning group, the whatever, whoever sets direction. Uh, this is a person who is, um, has developed or invented or brought about a, a big idea and brought it forward. This person who says, I love this idea, let's do it. This person is, I, I can get involved with this idea. In fact, I, I can support it this way or I can support it that way. These people are, this person's giving up anything and everything to make it happen. So it's basically just different levels, commitment, enrollment, genuine compliance. That's Senge anyway. Yeah, Paul. In our um, typical congregation, this is Furel. Could you put percentages on that? Could, could I now? Well, that's a question I would ask you. Well, I beat you. Yeah. I, I, don't know. I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. But I would imagine that um, churches I have been, into, uh, have been in, I would say that there is a fair amount of neutral to negative um, going on in, in the church. There may be exceptions always, but I would say that uh, largely and especially, I would say, membership-driven churches are transactional. It doesn't inspire you to change the world. This person says we must do this. If we don't, X will happen. Or if we do, Y will happen. You know, something, something meaningful. You would think as a mission-driven organization as churches are or should be, we would all find ourselves in some level of over here. But instead, I think very often our churches are finding, especially if we are defending, building fortresses around our, our ministries, we're seeing a sense of formal compliance. I'll be honest, I've lived in formal compliance before myself. You know, um, when I lose my way and when I'm, 
what are we doing here anymore? You know, I have to find my way and sort of dig my way out of that. And by the way, I don't feel like I could dig my way out of that on my own. I need to be a part of a community. I mean, these people believe something is going to change if the vision is achieved. These people are waiting for something. These people don't think that's the direction at all. And this, these people who aren't showing up, they don't, they don't care. And I do worry about our kids living in grudging compliance, sometimes to non-compliance, but very often grudging compliance, hopscotching over to apathy. Other thoughts, comments? Yeah. Well, I was thinking about church planters and how often a church plant team might consist of commitment and enrollment people. Uh, but then as the story of that organization goes, people shift and often within the first year, the plant team after launch is gone. Gone. Um, and, and sometimes that's a necessary transition just because they have gone from being genuine compliance or enrollment people to non-compliance um, right. or apathy. And, right. and I think that that can be any organization's um, story yeah. as, they, as they journey through a project and a strategic initiative of any kind. You've got those people who catch the vision or set the vision and then over time, you know, months go by and you don't have any action. Yeah. Um, and you, you lose faith in the process. Right. So, so I think we can see ourselves along this continuum, and you can see your church members at different seasons of your church. At different times. I agree with that, most, most definitely. Um, Lars, let me ask to ask you, you work with young people, you're at a college. Um, what are the characteristics of a young person over here or one who's over here? I mean, this is almost revival-like mm -hmm. energy. Yeah. All right, over here. Right. What does it look like over here? Uh, I mean, I think that uh, there's a lot of distrust in organizations or institutions. And so how we capture imagination really matters. Like, right. Do we have relationship um, or are we trying to, to rally them um, clickbait, you know, kind of stuff. So right. I think there's a lot of suspicion and the non-compliance or maybe the grudging compliance um, can often just be a resistance to what they perceive to be uh, an organization or something that they distrust. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I see a lot of this avoidance um, that yes. it almost looks like apathy to me. I, would, I, I agree with saying, yeah, I much prefer when I can get the static and then I can address right. what their, their non-compliance. If I see that they're non-compliant, it's easier to address it. If they're apathetic, I don't know if it's formal compliance or apathy sometimes. Right. Yeah. <coughs> That's good. Thank you. So what yeah. you're saying is these Go ahead, are fluid? Paul. What's that? These, these, these are fluid? People move through those? They oh. can move from non-compliant all the way to... I, I, hope, I hope to goodness they're fluid. <laughs> because <laughs> if they're not... They have 10 activities going on. Yeah, Brian. One ministry oh. will... Sorry. That's right. And and there are seasons, you're right, seasons of life, different times of life too. Yeah, Brian. I, you, you shared something like this with, with our leadership team a while back, and I just remember it's been super helpful for me to remember um, that as long, if, if someone is upset about something, at least they care enough to be upset. Mm -hmm. And that's just been helpful as far as I think about aptitude. Mm -hmm. So that you got to sometimes 
be willing to sit in there and, and hear those things and Correct. listen to them. And sometimes it's hard to, right. but especially if you're here, it's like at least they care enough to say something. Right. I, I've appreciated that <laughs> distinction in my own way. Of looking I'm forward. glad. That's good. That, yeah, it, there's a lot of, there can be a lot of energy over here. You know, that, and that's one thing leaders are doing is where is the energy in our, in our organization or church, you know? Well, there can be energy here. It's not pleasant, but there's energy here. Um, there's energy here and here, less so here, and then certainly not here. Um, well, as we wrap up, because I think we're going to start another class here in just a minute. So what do we do? Uh, what replaces the, these rocks? Again, this is not solving that. Uh, the garage is still uh, has my rock in it. I think we still have these rocks. But as we think about our rational autonomy, uh, one, op one, one option for us is to consider creating an informal community of congregations and ministries. Ministries are beginning to manifest themselves in different ways. And if they can come around together in churches, I think it will enlarge the local mission it, uh, we can share resources and ideas. I believe this is going to become exceedingly important as we go forward. One of the reasons I'm being invited in California to speak at churches is not because I'm a great preacher. It's because they can't find any. Or churches get to a place where they can no longer afford to even bring one out. And what happens? There is kind of a cascading effect here. We can get the guy who teaches, you know, every Sunday. He's, he's pretty good. He's pretty smart. Well, that only lasts for a while. There are some really great trained people, but they need to be able to support their families and make it work somehow. I do see some need for churches to work together. Uh, they can discern the opportunity of their moment and of their place and environment in which they're planted, solve problems, and they can augment the strengths and weaknesses of the other and can be, in some way, a very effective um, uh, ministry. Discipleship-driven churches replace membership-driven, more Jesus, less rotary. <laughs> They're mission-focused. They form communities at higher levels of commitment. Remember, it takes a lot to get up here. These people understand what will change. What will change if the, if the vision is, is realized? And then finally, fortress churches replaced by open table churches, welcoming the broader community, responsive to the immediate community, and their particularities. I think that is the great benefit of our autonomous churches. But what is it really about? It really is about responding to the people we are around. So um, anyway, all this is is food for thought, uh, a little bit of abstract thinking about our churches, but I do think we're in the middle of needing to figure some of these out. Um, maybe I'll bring some bigger rocks next time. But I will, uh, uh, I, I promise you I'll be able to share this story with the garage in my backyard. Uh, my garage, the rock in my garage is gone. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much.